My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the post-credit pod. Eric, so great to have you back on the microphone. You look great, my friend. Oh, dude, it's the lighting, but thank you. So, <laughs> so do you, pal. No one there. Well, my lighting's terrible because all of my lamps and lights have been removed. I'm, I'm moving in a couple days, so I'm, I'm in like a bare-bones apartment right now. When, but, uh, when is your move? Monday. Monday? Okay, word. Come to your neck of the woods. Yeah, Jersey, baby. <laughs> Man, a lifelong New Yorker going to New Jersey. You hate to see it. But I'm Welcome doing it for to the love. dark side, brother. <laughs> well, we've got a great show as always today. Eric has a really cool interview with last night in Soho director Edgar Wright. Uh, we're going to run through our news. We're going to talk about kind of famous twists and what makes a good narrative plot an emotional twist in modern entertainment because it's become so prevalent. We're going to talk a little bit about the Matrix Resurrections, a lot of cool stuff. So before we get to that, as always, we do have a bunch of news to run through. And Eric, I don't know about you, it feels like some beefier, weightier news than in recent weeks. Like a lot of big things are happening, a lot of exciting things. Well, I think it's because that for the first time in a long time, like remember at the end of September, there was that scare like, oh, is Venom going to get pushed back again? And right. is there going to be another wave of delays? That conversation has largely subsided, I think. I think that- We're full steam ahead now. Yeah, and I think that that is playing a role in sort of the onslaught of news that we've gotten. I agree. All right, let's get to it. To start, Disney and Pixar yesterday released the first trailer for Lightyear. Go, go, Fido, go. Okay, go, fight. Cabin pressurization is underway. As we prepare for ignition, flight recorders are on. Anyone who's been listening to the show knows that Eric and I have been hyping up Lightyear sight unseen for months. I mean, just on paper, it has everything you want. It is a prequel spinoff to Toy Story based on the quote real life figure that inspired Buzz Lightyear. It's a sci-fi action adventure and it stars Chris Evans in the lead role. Like, like you know, if you were playing Pixar uh, Mad Libs, that would be the perfect collection. You know, the uh, extent to which we've talked about this film is almost bordered on like parody, not parody, but like a bit. Like that's how much we've yeah. been talking about it. I think our hype has been justified. The response to this trailer has been incredible across the board, not just from us. I think everybody is, I'd say, and we were on this beat. I think people are surprised by the tone of it. I think that it's sort of an acknowledge. I mean, Pixar at the end of the day, is an animated movie and then therefore inherently for children brand. But based on the tone of this trailer, it looks like the most adult film or yeah, maybe the most adult film that Pixar has done. And to that end, I think that this is like the tone of both the film and the tone of the trailer teasing it is an acknowledgement from Pixar that the people that they're trying to reach aren't 10, 12 year olds, but like, People in their 20s, people who were born in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I don't want to go as far as saying Pixar is making an adult movie. But I do think that the reason that the response has been the way that it is, is because it does seem to be geared more towards people who grew up with the original Toy Story. And it's a great way to that point to keep a piece of IP valuable and fresh and top of mind. You know, if Hollywood is insistent, and I wrote about this for Observer, on recycling its own libraries and leveraging all these, these pre-established franchises, they might as well make it interesting. And this is interesting. It's human-based sci-fi as opposed to the 
anthropomorphic, I can't even say that word. <laughs> Instead of the fucking robot in Wally, <laughs> you know, it, there will be words in this movie. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. There will be words. So after Coco and Soul really pushed the as visual aesthetic boundaries of Pixar, imagine what Pixar can now do with the cosmos as its playground. And frankly, after Soul and Luca went to Disney Plus, Encanto is going to come out in theaters later later this uh, this. I think, uh, I think March. Year, but- yeah, yeah, and that's that's Dis- a Disney original. This is like oh no, Pixar's- sorry, 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 sorry. Encanto comes out later this year. Turning that's Red, it. which is also yes. theaters only, I believe, is in March, and then Light Years in June. Go ahead. Yeah, so this is a kind of star-driven, big-budget sci-fi spectacle that welcomes Pixar audiences back to theaters, and I think this is a great way to relaunch into that vibe. And not even that, but if you look at the marketing strategy around it. I don't think Chris Evans says a word. Like if you're a kid, you're not. And and that's why I keep saying this feels like it's geared for adults because it's not a trailer that teases the plot or teases the wacky sci-fi adventures of Buzz Lightyear. There are scenes of him staring out windows and staring into the (laughs) sky, pondering the meaning of like life. You know what I mean? And so they eschewed plot details, which usually how you entice a kid is to tell them what the film is going to be about and instead went for one of those tone setting trailers like how you talked about the first batman trailer was more of a tone setter that's the sort of vibe that i got from this and those vibes that i'm getting are what would happen if pixar melded apollo 13 and ad astra and that's what i'm getting (laughs) and that's what i'm getting from this fucking movie which i love that is honestly incredible. And I think that, you know, like I said, we were bordering on a bit the way that we talked about it. Not only has our hype been confirmed, but I am now fully circling Lightyear, even up there, not quite up there with the likes of Doctor Strange 2 or the Batman, but truly one of my most anticipated films of the next year. That's high praise. And we'll move on after this, but I saw a great tweet which basically said after Avengers Age of Ultron and now this teaser trailer, Chris Evans is becoming the king of almost saying a catchphrase before cutting to black. <laughs> I was like, you know what? You're right. It's a nice little niche market to dominate. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. So <laughs> bottom line is, I think even though it almost seemed impossible going in, this trailer exceeded my hype. I would agree. All right, moving on. Legendary has officially announced Dune Part 2, slated to drop in October 2023. Production could begin as early as fall 2022. Eric, it's a pretty quick turnaround. Mm. So I, I bet they had already been working on casting and visual effects and whatnot, you know, on the sly. And I think Denis was confident enough that it was going to happen because of conversations with Legendary and Warner Brothers that they even allowed him to put Dune Part 1 in the title what we had said last week, if they were genuinely up in the air about it, I don't see why you would dig the hole for yourself by title carding at Dune part one. That in and of itself suggested that barring something cataclysmic, they were going to move forward with part two. Yep. And so pretty excited, happy for the the Dune stands out there. And I'm excited to see where it goes. It also makes it a lot easier. And I wrote about this today for Observer. You can check that out. Makes it a lot easier for them to sell Dune the Sisterhood and other TV expansions of the franchise if they have a successful two-part series rather than a one-and-done misfire. Now, let me make a few quick points on Dune. Actually, let me ask you something first, and then I'll make a few quick points. 
Have you rewatched yet? I've seen it twice in theaters. I'm going to rewatch a third time on HBO Max this this weekend. Oh, so you saw it twice in theaters. And did your opinion improve or decrease upon repeat viewing? Uh, I think mostly the same with a greater appreciation for the actual filmmaking, which is already high. Like I have it as like an 8.5 out at of a, at a 10. That's roughly where I'm at. Uh, I think it's just a damn beautiful film. I still think some context, some necessary context is lost in translation from page to screen. But man, you know, this is this is a damn good blockbuster overall. Even if I don't love it, I really, really like it. Even if I don't love it, it's one of my five favorite films of 2021 thus far. And I'm really excited for Dune Part 2, which having read the book and now I'm actually halfway through the second book, I, I know can be explosive in a way that this wasn't exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I think D- Denis Villeneuve has long ago solidified himself but if there was any doubt he's an elite filmmaker yeah from a yeah. technical standpoint yeah. this guy i'll see anything he does so i've yet to rewatch. i definitely want to i'm definitely anticipating that i'm gonna like it more the second time i watch it i'm guaranteeing i'm going to like dune part two more than dune part one now i guess the point that i want to make about dune is and i think one of my greatest strengths as a person not just in terms of my work but as a person is i know what i don't know and i'm and i will readily admit when i was wrong i was wrong about dune in all sense of the word i think that the box office returns have been stronger than i thought it would uh you are probably more uh in tune to those details than me but i think it set a box office record for like the HBO Max films that have been released on HBO Max at the same time. Yeah. And the reception to it, while I have seen people agree with sort of my point of view that it looks great, but at the end of the day, it's slow. The general reaction from the average moviegoer has been far more positive than I thought it would be. And yeah. I just want to just come up front and be like, I was dead wrong about doing prospects. I guess I... I mean, you and I both thought it was going to bomb no matter what. Well, uh, no, 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 no. I don't think I, I, I didn't think it was going to bomb. I was just, I didn't think that, I didn't think it would translate to like box office dollars. I thought a large percentage of its viewership would be on HBO Max, which that seems to be the case. But even still, the box office doing well, but more so the reaction from, I mean, people are calling this a masterpiece, you know, and I just... I guess I didn't expect the denseness of the plot to translate to mainstream success, which I, which is a credit to the movie-going public, in fact. The yeah. fact that they are accepting of a film like this. I had just read the room wrong, I guess, which, again, I'll happily be wrong. I'm glad that Dune is doing <laughs> well, despite my ultimate disappointment in it, which is also born out of the otherworldly expectations that I have for Villeneuve himself. I expect... Nothing but mind-blowing cinema every time I go to see one of his films. So because I didn't feel that way narratively, as you and I said, we were technically blown away, but the narrative portion of it fell short for me. And I thought that that would be a problem that, that also manifested itself in the public. And I was wrong. It's it's quite popular among general audiences, which I, I really mean, it's been mean. It's like becoming me, like how you yeah. put out all these Dune puns that are going. Have you seen the Shrek one where they replace all, all of the faces with Shrek? And it's just like, what are you doing in my swamp? I love that one. That's one of to my achieve favorites. That sort of ubiquitous pop cultural conscious status is something that only the biggest films of any like when you cross over into memedom, you have reached a level of relevance that not a lot of films get to. So not only is it a hit 
in terms of critical analyzation, but it's a hit in terms of it's bleeding into pop culture in other ways. It's very impressive. I'm happy to see it doing well. I'm really excited for Dune Part 2 and Dune the Sisterhood whenever it comes out. All right, switching from WB to Disney, Eternals currently has the lowest Rotten Tomato score of any MCU film. You and I have both seen it. That's just fucking absurd. And I, and I am not oblivious or, or provincial in my film opinions. When, when I can recognize things and their faults and understand why other people might not like, like something that I like, I do. And in that case, I agree that there are things that I think the mainstream audience uh, will find maybe a little bit tricky about Eternals, even if I really enjoyed it. But it is such a better film on every level than, say, Thor Black the Dark Widow, World. Thor or, the Dark or, World. Yeah, the, the, the lower scored um, MCU films. For it to have the lowest Rotten Tomatoes grade of anyone, it just goes to show you that I, I think Rotten Tomatoes is such a binary reductive system and we need to toss it out because that's just insane. Yes, but the critics are the one whose opinions gave it that score. I know, it's insane. To which I ask, what the fuck do these people want? And like, I like to think I'm not somebody who engages in the toxicity of fandom and I'm not trying to stand for Marvel and Disney who certainly don't need our help in that <laughs> regard. But I put out a Twitter thread this week that gained a bit of steam and it happened because I, A, I had found out that it was tied with Thor The Dark World and now is below that, which, ended up, which, which is also not fair considering Thor The Dark World came out when the MCU was a totally different product, you know? But... I was look, but just the fact that that even a film like Black Widow has a higher score than this, right, blew me away. So then I started to read through some of the reviews, and I came across this one from the New York Post, and I'm going to say his name here because I think his criticisms are ridiculous. This is New York Post's Johnny Olensinski. So this is what he said about Eternals. Seriously, what a snooze. Fresh off of winning the Best Director Oscar for Nomadland, Chloe Zhao has upchucked, quote, one of the worst MCU movies in ages, which is a heavy thing to say, right? Rewind the clocks back four months to what he said about Black Widow, a stakeless prequel that was set earlier in the timeline that was basically not so much a cash grab, but it didn't serve any narrative purpose, right? And I just want to remind folks that Eric and I didn't actually hate Black Widow. We thought it was mid-tier Marvel, solid, but we're not picking on Black Widow. We're just trying to make a comparative reference so you guys understand the kind of tier that we are thinking Eternals might belong to. So here's what that same guy said about that film. This movie's vibe isn't like your average MCU entry at all, which to me is insane because Black Widow is basically the most formulaic hero story you could possibly have. Whereas okay. Eternals remixes the MCU formula in, in creative ways, in my opinion. What it reminded me of are the many James Bond films where 007 goes rogue and cavorts around world cities seeking his revenge. So he's praising the globe-trotting nature of <laughs> Black Widow, but Eternals, which is probably the most expansive MCU film in that sense, that's boring. And so then the next point I made was, and this is what really drives me fucking nuts. Movie critics like to prance around on their high horse about the creativity-stifling assembly line nature of the MCU, right? That has long been a thing that direct, like, other than the likes of, like, Taika Waititi, that they feel Marvel Studios doesn't really let a director imprint their own vision on those films. But when a director like Zhao actually does something different, 
Apparently, it's a snooze fest and pales in comparison to a movie that has Scarlett Johansson doing combat whilst in free fall. It boggles I like that the scene, though, in Black Widow. I do like that scene. Yes, but it's such, such reductive superheroing. The spy base in the sky explodes and she throws the ones on the way down. I mean, give me a fucking break. So I just, <laughs> I just think the disconnect of critics acting like they want something different is a lie because when they're given something different, they don't want to grapple with the ideas being put forth. They would rather just see a globe-trotting Bond spy film. And I think that is a bit of the disconnect here and why I'm hopeful audiences will be more responsive to it because audiences, I think, are less rigid in their opinions of film genre and therefore won't be so perturbed when Eternals plays more like a sci-fi film than it does a classic superhero film, which seems to be what critics have a problem with, that it's too heady and too dense and too bloated. But these are the things that we're praising Dune for at the same time. So go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say that I'm not trying to rant, but I'm fucking ranting. The (laughs) inconsistencies in critical opinions drives me insane. And then the same guy in the same review docked the film for, quote, and the group's leader, Ajak, is played by Salma Hayeki, who, quote, is not even allowed to be fun and Salma Hayeki. What the fuck does that mean? I, I mean, maybe he's contrasting it to the Hitman's Bodyguard sequel earlier this year in which she's thrown F-bombs around the world. She's very fun. But, you know, I, I think she's, she's pretty good in limited screen time. Yeah. So and I just think that the, I'm not trying to single out this one guy's review, but I just think it is a it is symptomatic of the larger factors at play here. I think if everyone listening wants to just kind of discount the critical co- uh, conversation going on around Eternals and just focus on their own list of pros and cons going into the movie, I would say it's really cool because the MCU thus far has been built on very human based drama, very relatable struggles, very, very normal earthbound character details. And here it shifts to mythic legendary heroes having an existential crisis rather than a normal human uh, kind of familiar crisis. These are, you know, godlike stakes that I find very interesting. And I think the cons would be that it's, it's constantly threatens to overflow with too much ambition, trying to do too much, and that it's pacing and structure is a little weird with the flashbacks kind of cutting down momentum here and there. But overall, you know, I put this in my top 10 MCU films. I'm very Same. interested to hear what, what you guys think because there's pros and cons like every movie. I just, I don't really know what some of the harshest criticisms are, are talking about. I just didn't yeah, get that. Same. Agree, disagree, whatever. Just let us know after you see it at Pod at Eric Italiano, at great underscore Catsby, because we want to talk about it more. We're definitely going to touch on it a little bit next week. Oh, absolutely. Moving on, Hayden Christensen will return as Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader in Disney Plus's Ahsoka. We don't know what exactly form it's going to take. We don't know how that's going to happen, but... Even though I don't think, you know, he was, they gave a very good performance in the prequels, though the script didn't do him any favors. This is still cool news. You know, this is like a full circle Star Wars moment, and I'm excited for it. I think it's pretty awesome that he has a chance to kind of go out on maybe a higher note. Plus, this is two upcoming Star Wars projects that he's now confirmed for. What was the second one? Obi-Wan. Oh, is he coming back to Obi-Wan? Yes, dude. Oh, okay, dope. And there we go. Kathleen Kennedy. I can't keep track of all these things, man. There's a thousand franchises we're I know. Kennedy had, tw- had teased his return in Obi-Wan as being, quote, the rematch of the century. So. Dope. I'm in. Yeah. All right. So very excited for that. Elsewhere, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness has added additional reshoots on top of the reshoots already scheduled underway. 
after its release delay, de- delay in recent weeks. Now, Eric, blockbusters always have reshoots. This is very common, but these are longer than the typical reshoots built into the schedule. I'm wondering, not that there's anything wrong with the movie, but maybe something changed internally at Marvel in a, in a creative direction or something has been, you know, decided on, we're not going to do that anymore. On the fly like that, though? It happens, man. Okay. Maybe well, they were I'll... waiting for a deal to go through for one of the uh, one of the alternate reality people to to come, and they ended up couldn't do it. Something I don't know. It because makes me I think, think though, I think all signs at this point point to this film being an MCU game changer, right? So, do you think the realization that they had to reshoot Doctor Strange two is what set off the chain of events of all the MCU delays that that they just announced last year? I Very mean, last week. Yeah, because yeah. I think a lot hinges on Doctor Strange too. Yeah, interesting. So, wow. Okay, wow. Then I have no. I can't even begin to tell. Because even if they remember, they had two separate scripts for Civil War down to the last minute. One in which uh, Spider Man was in it, and one in which it wasn't. So ah. they they are capable of massive shifts on a dime. Wow. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So we'll see. Related. John Watts, the director, has compared the ambition of Spider Man No Way Home to Avengers Endgame. I mean, if there wasn't any more official confirmation that all the Spider-Men are showing up, like every thinly veiled quote seems to suggest that that's the, that's the case. Yeah, my man literally compared his film to the most financially successful movie of all time. No pressure. <laughs> Good luck with that. I, but honestly, can't wait. <laughs> yeah, and I think, especially with the state of the box office, the way that it's been the last month, I think your prediction, which you've been saying pretty much for the entire year that this could be the first billion dollar film post COVID, I think is very much on track. Be the first one since rise of Skywalker in 2019. It's been, a, yeah. it's been a stretch. Yep. Uh, HBO has ordered a fourth season of succession. That was a no brainer move. Super excited. Can't wait. Mm-hmm. Michael B. Jordan's HBO max Valzad series has found its writers in Darnell, Darnell Mateer and Josh Peters. The pair have written exclusively for, I mean, extensively for film and TV, most recently working on the upcoming Transformers Rise of the Beasts for Paramount. Still no word yet on whether or not Jordan's going to star as well as executive produce, but pretty excited, man. I like all the the cool different Superman projects they got going on over there. Uh, Look, I am excited, but right now it's a wait and see. If Jordan attaches his name to star in it as well, then I'll be gassed the fuck up. He should. Because there is no black actor more suited to take on a young, exciting Superman than him. I, 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 so I, I don't know where else they would find someone who's as good of a fit. There's, I think there's a lot of capable candidates, but he really is a great one. The problem is, you know, he's making his feature directorial debut with Creed three, which he's also starring in. You know, I just don't know where in the schedule he fits it in, but I hope it happens. Yeah. Now, Ryan is Gosling. this the one? Sorry. Is this the one that J.J. Abrams is also involved in? No, J.J. No? Abrams is producing Taneshi Coates's uh, Black Superman film that they're still, you know, getting, getting together. I think the script is due in, in December to Warner brothers. So that so, is a, a big screen project. This is HBO max limited series. Given that this is going to be a Valzad project. I think it's safe to assume that the film will be a black Clark Kent. Then that's what there, the initial there, report suggested yeah. though. It, it said it's not, you know, set in stone. There's no, I, I say it is set in stone because there's no way that they're going to roll out two competing Valzad projects. I, I think there's a, th- a third Superman who's also black. I can't remember. Oh, okay. okay. I think there's a third guy who becomes like president or something. I, I can't remember. Ryan Gosling has joined Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie opposite Margot Robbie from a script written by Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. 
Uh, this is shaping up to be the weirdest, but most talented, amazing upcoming project with just heavy hitters at every level level. Like I would have never thought I'd be excited for a Barbie movie, but this level of talent, I was like, Hey guys, this is gonna be something different. Now, and just to be clear, this isn't like a Michael Keaton, the founder type film where it's about the making of Barbie. Uh, no, from what Barbie. I understand, they Barbie are playing, yeah, Barbie and Ken, which I just don't understand how that's going to work. But given the talent involved, yeah. you can't help but be, uh, I don't know if I'm excited for it, but intrigued, I'm excited. intrigued, absolutely. I mean, Greta Gerwig has quickly become one of our, our best working directors. No Bombach, you know, is a great filmmaker and he's co-writing the script. We've got two great leads. Like, it's going to be really compelling and deep. And I think it's not just like, uh, hey, here's our IP. Look at it. Right, right. Marvel Studios is rumored to begin production on a Thunderbolts film in 2023. I don't know anything about the Thunderbolts, really. Yeah, well, we, well we've been, that they have been teasing it through uh, yeah, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's sort of rounding up of the MCU's anti-hero. Right. So, so far we've got um, John Walker. What's his... Uh, his name Wyatt Russell. We've got a nomination. Know. No, no, no. The character he plays John Walker, agent, 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 U.S. agent. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, U.S. agent Florence Pugh's Black Widow. Um, Abomination, maybe potentially Baron Zemo. So, yeah, That'd I'm surprised. Cool. I guess I'm surprised that it's a film and not a show. But hey, I would love to see, as we've long been saying, like we would like to see a Doctor Doom project straight up. MCU making anti-hero films is something that I very much want to see. I want them to give us heroes that it's not a black and white. Oh, I'm going to root for the good guy, you know? <laughs> I'm excited. James Wan revealed that the canceled Trench spinoff was secretly a Black Manta movie. Makes more sense because I remember when they announced it and everyone was dunking on it, rightfully so, myself included, because it was a stupid idea for a spinoff movie. But actually having it built around Yahya Abdul-Mateen II's Black Manta, that makes more sense. Now Absolutely. I'm disappointed it's not happening. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think they would have had a hard time getting that one off the ground regardless, but definitely makes more sense than a trench film. Absolutely. Brendan Fraser has been cast as Firefly in HBO Max's Batgirl movie. Guy is having one hell of a comeback. You know, he's starring in uh, upcoming Darren Aronofsky movie. He nabbed a role in Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. He's been crushing it on Doom Patrol. He was good in No Sudden Move and on HBO Max this year. So great to go, Brendan Fraser. You get it, man. You deserve live, it. Live your life, King. Yeah. Uh, Amelia Clark and Chiwetel Ejiofor are going to lead the sci-fi romance, The Pod Generation. I don't need to go into a big, long uh, plot synopsis. I just thought you would be excited because it's two likable stars in sci-fi romance. That's a no-brainer for me. Yeah, so they got your click. They got your they, you got, got your your view over there. Absolutely. Uh, Showtime's Catherine Hod led Joan Rivers miniseries is not moving forward after producers failed to secure the life rights from Joan Rivers' daughter. That's a bummer. I love Joan Rivers, huge fan. Catherine Hahn's really talented. That could have been a, a special piece of programming. I mean, that seems like that probably should have been the step one. Yeah, to, to get the life rights. Logistically, I just I don't I don't know. I have nothing to add except confusion. Zack Snyder says his Rebel Moon project, a romantic sci-fi, right up Eric's alley, will be the Krypton scenes in Man of Steel, quote, on steroids. So that's a hell of a pitch. Yeah, that was, of course, an exclusive from our chat with Zack earlier this week. So make sure to check that out if you haven't already. And speaking of Zack Snyder, the Army of the Dead sequel will be titled Planet of the Dead. So I'm assuming the zombie apocalypse got worse. Yes, yes, that would be fair. Now, Army of Thieves also um, hits Netflix tomorrow, Friday, October 29th. You were low on it. I think it's the definition of a movie. 
it um like like I am I don't have any opinions on it. I didn't think it was great. I didn't think it was bad either. I was just like, okay, it's a movie. I watched it and now I'm going to move on with my life. But Rebel Moon, him and I talked about that project for about 15 minutes. And that I am excited for because he when I sort of explained my romantic sci fi thing to him, he was pretty much like, yep. That's what this is. Oh, I was like, fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> Fair enough. I look forward to reviewing it with you, my man. Uh, and then the Place Beyond the Pines director, Derek, you know what? I'm not even going to try this last name because there's no shot I can pronounce it right. But he's See in, in France. Talks. See in France? All right. Well, I was never going to get that. Uh, he's in talks to direct Universal's Wolfman with Ryan Gosling set to star. Uh, I put this out in a tweet earlier this week, but I'm really intrigued by this project because outside of Blade Runner 2049, you look at Ryan Gosling's resume, he has never really done big IP almost ever mm. and so i'm that means the pitch must have been pretty interesting for him he must have liked it right off the bat so i'm very intrigued by where this wolfman thing goes because i'm not necessarily a big classic universal monsters movie kind of guy but uh you know this, no, this me could be either, compelling. but uh i think gosling is one of the best movie stars we have today because not only does he have the looks and the chops and all that but he could legitimately act i mean if you compare his character in the nice guy versus the character he plays in blade runner they're two totally different people and he nails each everything he's in he's fantastic in. so this tells me that wolfman and barbie just by him being involved i have high hopes for yeah he's he's definitely all over the spectrum in a good way so i'm excited for that all right, let's move on before we get into our conversation about twists and Eric's interview with Edgar Wright. I want to briefly talk about the Matrix Resurrection because today on Observer, I posted a pseudo scoop, not exactly a full on scoop, but it wasn't exactly, uh, it wasn't public information either. Uh, actress Ellen Holman is going to be starring as a version of Trinity in an alternate universe in Matrix Resurrection. So this kind of this news plays into existing theories that I think are already out there, you know, because the multiverse theory, it would help explain why Morpheus, originally played by Lawrence Fishburne, of course, is now played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen. It would also provide an explanation for basically the resurrection of Neo and Trinity, since Trinity definitively died in Matrix 3, and Neo may or may not have died, but it was clearly with his body, was with the machines. It wasn't with uh, the humans. So this offers... Uh, a bit of context and explanation. Uh, Machines, in the trilogy second installment, The Matrix Reloaded, the architect basically explains that there's been multiple iterations or cycles of the Matrix and that the machines continue to kind of shudder and redesign the system in order to achieve their goals. So it's got me thinking resurrections take place either in an earlier version, a new cycle, a splinter program of the existing iteration. We don't exactly know, but clearly there's going to be some multiversal elements that allow certain characters to return or change. I think this, with this expanded scope in mind, our heroes may be either attempting to unite the various alternate universes. Or which, is with, re- which is a version of what we said when we exactly. broke down the trailer. That's why I thought this pseudo scoop was particularly interesting because it plays into existing discussion points we've had and other people have had in talking about Matrix. I could also see the original Matrix universe trying to import these new alternate versions of Neo Trinity since they're no longer in the present timeline. Uh, I'm not sure how exactly it's going to play out, but it gives you an idea of the kind of scope and plot mechanics Lana Wachowski is going for in the Matrix Resurrections. And frankly, a multiverse Matrix idea I was thinking about it. Pretty cool. I, I'm, yeah. I'm on board. I like the the different ways they could go with that because there's a lot that they could do. Yeah, I think casting wise, this isn't that big of news because I don't know who the actress yeah, is. But a... 
But plot line wise, this is a huge threat. I mean, this is a, a big piece of news as it relates to what's happening in the film. It's confirmation. Hey, give me those clicks we- on Observer, everybody. Come on, try to pay my bills. It's confirmation that we're going to be seeing, as you said, a sort of multiversal spin on this story, which given that they're sort of the founders of the simulation idea in pop culture, it only makes sense that they would adapt that idea to the modern landscape and have it be a sort of multiversal story. I will say it's a, it's a little funny and just a little cynically draining that Marvel, DC, and Matrix are all going multiverse all in like a same, you know, six month period. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on to twists because speaking of, you know, the Matrix leads directly into that big twist. It's become so much more prevalent in Hollywood, particularly in these mainstream blockbuster kind of productions. Uh, Eric, you have seen Last Night in Soho, Edgar Wright's new movie, which you talk about with him in a little bit. And that apparently includes a major mind-bending twist that critics have been losing their shit over for weeks as screenings roll out. And before we get into your interview, I just want to talk about the nature of twists, how they work, what some of the best ones in film and TV are. And I want to do that because as I get older, Eric, and this is going to be an unpopular opinion, I find myself liking major plot twists less and less. And I want to use Squid Game as just a microcosm for the larger conversation from my viewpoint. Now, in Squid Game, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, the big twist reveal is that the kindly old man was actually the ringleader behind the entire thing. And I had mixed feelings about this, Eric. On one hand, I didn't see it coming. I did not for one second think that the old guy would be the organizer, you know, the head honcho of the Squid Game. I absolutely thought he died in episode six. So my lack of foresight, you know, my lack of expectation meant that the twist wasn't indeed a shocking turn. And as far as twists go, that's what what you want, an unexpected flip on the script. So congrats on that front to Squid Game for for tricking me. Sorry, what were you going to say? No, I'm just going to say that I think when we talk about twists and we will talk about this film in it, of itself, but Michael Caine's character in the prestige says people want to be fooled. That's what they want. And I think that is the core appeal of the twist that in this world where we're, we're going to get to what we want out of twist. in film, especially when in film, especially when you could largely see the plot unfolding as it happens to be genuinely fooled or surprised is I think the ultimate allure of twists. It's particularly hard in this day and age because, you know, film Twitter and and all these kind of people taking set photos, all all the way things can leak. Um, But on the flip side of the Squid Games twist and why I kind of have been growing less fond of them is, is it raises more questions. You know, was the dementia as a result of his tumor fake or real? If it was real, why would the Squid Game organization ever let their leader do that? You know, it's a risk. Uh, does it undercut the character development that predated the twist? You know, when you go back and watch the main character bond with the old man, reveal depths of his own emp- empathy that we didn't really see at first and exchange personal details about their lives, does it retroactively cheapen that bond? Does it wash away the emotional character development? To me, it's always been a bit of yes and a bit of no. You know, knowing that this guy set them up and they weren't in the foxhole together as originally believed, it, it gives me a little bit of pause. So. This extends to most twists these days. Does what that you feel like you like that, that you feel you've been baited and switched? No, I, I feel twists are being used for the sake of sake of shocking audiences, and that they retroactively undercut some of the character development that precedes it before we know the twist. And I right. think upon several re- rewatches, it's very apparent in a lot of different mediums. So. Just to start off, now that I've ranted a little bit, and you just talked about it just now, how do you feel about twists in general these days? 
It's fascinating because, I mean, I do love a good twist. We did an entire podcast on the mindfuck genre, which is essentially a genre that that boils down a twist into its purest form and spreads it across the DNA of the entire film, right? But it's a double-edged sword because, first and foremost, a twist can either make or break a film. You could see the twist happen and be like, oh, holy shit, that's incredible. Or you could see a twist and it's so dumb that you laugh out loud at it, right? (laughs) But even more macro than that, and you touched on this, it not only changes what you've just seen, but it changes how you will see it going forward. And I think the best examples of this to me are Fight Club and Shutter Island. And I think it explains our complicated relationships with twists, right? Because in the moment, that first watch is an almost singular experience, right? Like (laughs) Shutter Island and Fight Club, I remember where I was and who I was with and how I felt having my mind blown the first time I saw it. And that is a unique cinematic experience that I think every movie fan chases. They want to be blown away by the events of the film to such an extent that it sticks with them. But at the same time, because of the nature of the twist, you'll never have that experience again. So to me, Fight Club will is not the same movie upon second and third viewings right. as it was that first time. So then that changes how you react to and analyze the film. Fight Club on that first watch, Shutter Island on that first watch are incredible experiences. But then, as you said, Shutter Island, like you claim that you saw the twist coming, but I have never been able to rewatch that film and recapture the sense of confusion and excitement that I had the first time. So that's why I think that I think the most important thing a twist could do, and this is when you really nail it, is that it blows you away, but it doesn't remove the excitement from subsequent watches. And I think a film that does that perfectly is Prestige. Even though you narratively know the twist, it doesn't undercut the emotion on subsequent viewings. All right, well, I'm glad you said that because my next question was what makes a good twist? And you've essentially answered it and given a couple examples. We're going to get into some of our favorites in a second and why they represent good examples and how they kind of epitomize structurally what they're going for. Quickly, I just want to point out some bad ones. Serenity, The Village, Remember Me, everything that happens in the Now You See Me franchise. I want people to understand my baseline, my baseline preferences for twists. And that is where you kind of tilt off the access into dumbassery territory. So everyone needs to know that about my scale before we jump into this. I also think there's different kinds of twists, right? There's absolutely there are. There's a purely narrative twist, like let's say Mm -hmm. Fight Club. There's a purely emotional twist, which I would say is something like the notebook. And then there are twists yeah. that and then there are twists that combine the two. And I'll touch on this later, but in a show like Lost. And I think that the ultimate twists are the ones that combine the two. It narratively mind fucks you, but then also that mind fucking has it registers the way that you emotionally respond to the film. Um, it's important that you broke down the classifications because it's so true that there are different types of twists that have different goals. And so we can't judge them all on the same exact uh, rubric or scale. Now, let me just list off a couple of the all-time twists, and I'm not sure that we're going to be talking about in detail, but 
we have to bring up all the same. Yes, because quickly, I, I want people to know this is not the best twist of all time. These are just some that we like. We're simply deconstructing them so we can discuss what stands out and what people can learn moving forward, storytelling wise. I would say that the, this list of the great twists of all time, right? Empire Strikes Back, Planet of the Apes, Usual Suspects, Memento, Sixth Sense, Fight Club, Parasite, Seven, Old Boy, Saw, Primal Fear, Gone Girl, Book of Eli, The Game, Signs, Ex Machina, and The Departed in the sense of like the shock of everyone dying at the end, I think counts as a twist. <laughs> I think that's a heavy hitter list, uh, one or two of which is on my, my list that we're about to talk about. Perfect. All right, so just to start off, I'm going with Spider-Man Homecoming. They reveal that Vulture is Liz's dad. Now, first of all, we never expected it, you know? We took Liz's character kind of at face value without ever sparing a single thought to her parents. And I think that this twist does, it's a lovably standard John Hughesian high school prom night. Suddenly takes a dangerous and dark turn. You know, when Michael Keaton opens that door, it's a genuine shock that elicited an audible response from my theater. And I know many other people's theaters. And I think this relationship then retroactively colors every single inner interaction between Peter and Liz while informing the remainder of the story. Like we said, it doesn't take away, it adds a new dimension. And then I think the subsequent car ride with Peter and, and her dad, Vulture, it's one of the best examples of dramatic tension in a mainstream tentpole blockbuster because nothing happens. It's just two people talking in a car. And yet it feels like the weight of the entire franchise is at stake in that moment. So long story short, it's a twist that adds a fascinating layer to character dynamics and didn't exist simply for twist's sake. That's a great lane to live in. Yeah, I'd say this is the inverse of the Fight Club twist, whereas like while the twist is shocking all the same, it, knowing it doesn't ruin watching the film going forward because the film isn't constructed around the twist. Yeah, it's this not big what, enough, but it's still big. This is a twist that was just sort of perfectly dropped in, both in terms of pacing and plotting, that it adds to the story with the knowledge of it, but doesn't detract from the story without the knowledge of it, if that makes sense. Well-modulated twist, for sure. They didn't, like you said, they didn't hinge the script around it, but it was an added curveball for added value. So I'm going to start mine off with a film I brought up a few times in this podcast so far, and that is The Prestige, which I think is the perfect twist because it's layered to such an extent that it's narratively mind-blowing while also being emotionally resonant. Christian Bale's twin, like one of the Bale twins dying being hung, losing his daughter hurts. Hugh Jackman describing the fear of being the man going into the box each night and having to face one of mankind's greatest fears of drowning hurts. So while you're having your mind blown to pieces about the narrative structure that led to the twist, it also layers it with such emotion that it elevates the entire film. How much money would you need to cut off your fingers, to continue existing as a famous magical act. Oh, what is this? The late 1800s or something? Yeah, or, med so medical you know, care is not good. But times are desperate. You know? <laughs> you know, you're just trying to get, not even get bread in the sense of like money, but literally get bread. <laughs> yeah, but this dude's only trying to trick Hugh Jackman, his rival. The average everyday audience member is not going to catch it with the gloves. True, but only one what... guy. He cuts his fingers off to trip fool one guy. But that's what made him the true magic goat. It's true. All right, I'm going with my next one. I'm going to the small screen. Scrubs, where do you think you are? 
oh, just, just a heartbreaking episode. Dr. Cox believes he's attending his son's birthday party, but it turns out to be a funeral of his best friend played by Brendan Fraser. So shout out there. And this was such a natural and organic twist. One that it didn't need a massive breadcrumb trail or Easter eggs, very simple. And I think it wrung all of the emotion out of the moment in a good way because the entire vibe changes on a dime while deepening Dr. Cox's character. And so particularly for TV, which is not, you know, these long two hour puzzle pieces, I, I thought it was really, really beautiful, really, really effective. For my next one, I'm and again, I've brought this one up a few times on the show. I talked about it pretty extensively on our Mindfuck pod, but I am going with Shutter Island. Um, it's becoming cliche how much I talk about this film on this <laughs> show in the context of thrillers and mindfucks and twists. But for me, and even though it's been over 10 years since this day, it remains one of those movie viewing experiences that just stuck with me. I remember exactly where on my friend's couch I was sitting when I watched it. And there aren't a lot of films mindfuck thrillers twists regardless in general that stick with me in the sense that island did that first time it's also a double twist you get the twist of that leo was actually loony patient the whole time but then you get the cliffhanging twist of is he actually self-aware so it gives you a twist in the middle of the third act that changes the entire film that you've just seen but it also gives you a twist in the final moment that sticks with you I have three things to say to that. Number one, I love that they leave it up to interpretation. My personal interpretation, he knows exactly who he is and what he's done. Same. Num- number two, we had duly appointed federal marshals. <laughs> that, that's it. And number three, now that I'm moving to your neck of the woods, I think we got to go as Teddy Daniels and Lester Sheehan for Halloween one year. <laughs> I just think we have to. We uh, could go climb around Liberty State Park. <laughs> exactly. Boom. I love it. Uh, I really got to rewatch Shutter Island too, a movie I really enjoy, but probably haven't seen for you know two years or, or so now. Yeah, great movie, just so atmospheric and dreadful, in a good way. You, know, you you like it more than my, me, but I still really like it, and I also like that Marty Scorsese is never afraid to try something new. You know, this this, this was dealing with a, a new genre, this kind of psychological uh, surrealism. You know, he new effects and visual motifs. I, I thought it was very very cool. For sure. Um, I'm going with Unbreakable, which you know I absolutely love based on our superhero movie draft and the twist that Elijah is the villain. You know, at the end of the movie, we learn that Samuel L. Jackson's Elijah is the one who orchestrated multiple disasters in order to find someone like David Dunn, who's played by Bruce Willis, who's the virtually indestructible man that exists on the opposite end of the spectrum from Mr. Glass. And I just love that having the Obi-Wan mentor type figure who, who we think is going to be a, a friend and a helper turn out to be the villain. is just a solid bait and switch from a structural standpoint, particularly after Elijah is the one who really pushes David to realize his full potential, thus saving his personal life as well as creating a superhero. And so I think it is really interesting. We also, this twist reveals kind of the depths of Elijah's childhood trauma and how they've shaped him today. And I think, Overall, when you zoom out, M. Night Shyamalan, he wrote an original love letter to comic books that used comic books framing in pitch perfect ways while still pulling the rug out from under us. All of it, that twist particularly, is a very inherently comic booky decision from a storytelling standpoint. And yet it lands without ever feeling, uh, you know, flaccid or recycled. And I just think all of it works. I love Unbreakable. You know, I, yeah, I know that's a film that you love because you've brought it up on this show. A few times. And I'm also glad you touched on M. Night because during my chat with Edgar Wright, which y'all will hear soon, he specifically name checked M. Night and was like, very cool. I I think film fans are too hard on him. 
So what if twists are his thing? I enjoy twists. And that's sort of the dangers of twists, though, right? M. Night is now synonymous with it. But to that point, just because you're synonymous with something, it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. So, and that was what, his second film after Sixth Sense? So he came out fucking fucking guns blazing. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's a serious one, too. Or was Signs his second? I can't remember. But I think I'm No, no, no. Signs wasn't until 2002 or three. But that's really cool that Edgar Wright name checked him and was like, hey, if, if a filmmaker finds their shtick and that's what they like, then at the end of the day, like their fans are going to like it. People who don't like it, you don't have to watch it. And like, yeah, exactly. I'm not a huge M. Night fan, but I think the guy is self-financing his movies like a boss. And he's, he's one of the only kind of commercial original filmmakers who pumps shit out with such frequency. It, it's unbelievable. He deserves celebration, even if I don't really love his films. Yeah, and I've not seen old, have you? No, and I'm I'm probably never going to watch all because it looks like that to me is exactly what I don't like. I'm not about it. But that doesn't mean I think like, you know, M. Night belongs in movie, Joe. I, I, but think, it, I respect the guy. It, of course, has a classic M. Night twist in it. And Ed, I know I know about the twist. I don't. And Edgar had said, you know, those last five minutes, he was like, I'm in, man. I'm sold. So, uh, OK, so I am going with a Denny Villeneuve trio. Oh, trio. Number one, Arrival. You're higher on this film than I am, but I still yeah, I love, love it. And this is an emotional knockout of a twist and also wildly simple in the best way possible. It's not the way that you're twisted here is not plot wise, but because of your preconceived notions of film structure. So Villeneuve uses our preconceived notions of how filmmaking normally works, i.e. we assume that these visions of her family are flashbacks in the past because that's just what we're used to. But he right. uses that against us and reveals that they're actually in the future. So while it's construct- Son of a bitch, you? It's, while, while it's construct is simple, so simple that he literally showed it to us at the beginning of the movie, he was able to subvert what we expect from film against us. So I, while I am not, while I do, like, I think that the twist of that film is its strongest part by a mile. Like that. Shout out to Max Richter's uh, Nature of Daylight, which is that violin song that plays throughout mm, the movie. Right. It's just beautiful. Mm. Awesome. I am also going with my favorite, Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> I had brought this up on the show a few weeks ago. I know this film is not one that necessarily comes to mind when people think of twists, because given its scope and its hardcore sci-fi aesthetic, but first time I saw this film, which was by myself at my local theater, I was all in on K being the naturally born child. Like I was sold, I was in, I was in on that journey. And the devastation of realizing that he wasn't, again, taps into what's good, what to both good things about twists. It blew my mind. I didn't see it coming, but it was also emotional as hell. I felt awful for him and all of the hell that he went to, to get to that point, just to find out that he is not the chosen one. So I, and Villeneuve in it's a general. a bit of a raw deal, okay? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a shame because I wonder what Blade Runner 2049 Part 2 would have looked like because it's ambiguous as to whether he dies at the end or not. So, unfortunately, the we Robot will... Revolution starring Marsha from Succession, which I did not know until you tweeted that. Yeah, me either. Uh, I, would, I want to see that. And then finally, Prisoners. Again, a two-parter twist. There's the reveal of who the real killer is. But there's also the cliffhanger ending twist of, well, would you count the ending as a twist? I've only seen Prisoners once and it was a long time ago and wow, I really dude. liked it. 
but I can't remember the exact like last moment. I actually just I can't. think if you rewatch it, you'll have a greater appreciation. I'm for sure. It. I'm, I remember walking out being like, this was awesome. This is a really good filmmaker. So the ending, see it. spoiler alert, spoiler alert, is that Jake Gyllenhaal goes to investigate the house where they found the kids. And Hugh Jackman's character is like in that pit and he's been bleeding out and he's dying. Oh yeah, I remember In the film's final moments where Jake Gyllenhaal hears a faint whistle because like uh, Hugh Jackman's character's daughter had like a safety whistle on her and she left it in the pit. And it's just so faint that you almost question if you're actually hearing it. Jake Gyllenhaal himself questions it. You literally see him like, shake it off and go, ah, nah, it can't be. And then you hear it again and he turns around and he snaps his neck and he's just looking out into like the darkness and then it cuts to black. So that is an example of, I don't know if that ending twist is necessarily a twist, but I think by definition, because it leaves you somewhere that you didn't expect to go, that makes it a twist. How great is it? And I know we're just kind of uh, a, a Denis slobber fest in recent weeks, but how great is it that Prisoners is so different from Sicario, which is so different from Arrival, which is so different from Blade Runner, which is so different from Dune? You know, yeah. each and every one is a whole different bag. Yeah, the man, the man. Look, I, again, my opinions of Dune aside, I think he's one of my favorite filmmakers working, and it is because he is able to merge the grandiose scale with the sharp as hell narrative turning points that makes him so good absolutely and man i just can't wait to see what, what else is uh, coming from him and i'm gonna go rewatch prisoners uh in the coming weeks for sure please all right for my last one and this is the one that you mentioned up top on some of the all-timers i'm going with saw jigsaw was there the whole time the dead body lying motionless on the floor of saw's central setting turns out to be the crime's mastermind and I just think this twist is beautiful in its lo-fi simplicity, especially when you remember that there's now been seven, eight sequels that have just compounded the absurdity of this franchise. So uh, I, I like that it didn't repaint characters in new lights. It didn't add a thematic level upon rewatch. It doesn't create a new puzzle piece. It just was flat out, no doubt about it, what the fuck shocking. A moment that didn't need ample teasing, foreshadowing, uh, clues, or bend over backwards mental gymnastics. It just managed to conjure up an absolute exclamation point of a conclusion, all from an old man getting off the ground. I Game mean, that's incredible. Over. Exactly. You know, you don't need, I think it's an example too, and this is why I like it. You don't need franchise budgets to make a, a good movie. And I liken it a little bit to Brick, Ryan Johnson's first feature which I love, and another low-budget genre reinvention that packs a punch over numerous twists and turns and ends with a, a kind of surprise gotcha type of situation. So uh, I think it works really well, perhaps even best, for these low-budget, out-of-nowhere movies that are very much shoestring kind of productions that people don't see coming. Was that your, so you have what, four? That that, that was, no, those were all five of mine. Five. Oh, no, actually, I skipped one. Whoops. I, I skipped one. <laughs> Go ahead. No, Tack no, on your fifth I, now. Okay. Then my, sorry guys. My fifth one is Inside Man and it's a multi-level twist. A, the bank robber doesn't actually rob the bank and B, the bank robber escapes by hiding inside the bank. Uh, I think that's great. It's a twist that the movie continually tells you. You know, Denzel Washington literally says halfway through the film, this ain't no bank robbery. So for the movie to treat Clive it- Clive Owen says, I'm going to walk out the front door. 
Yeah, exactly. He te- everything is told to you, you know, so for the movie to treat it as a well-played development that is telegraphed at every turn and still surprise you with its inventiveness shows you how well of a plot orchestration this was. And I can't I believe think- I, uh, I forgot, forgot to even, I just blanked on my whole list. Similar to Marty with Shutter Island, seeing Spike Lee experiment in a new genre is very cool. Dope. Like absolutely dope. going into like if nobody told you that that was a Spike Lee movie, you would never guess it. I would guess it maybe from the the uh, the brass orchestra and the shot tracking shot yeah, of and ben- the tracking shot where it always looks like the main character is floating, which yeah. are two staples of Spike Lee. But otherwise, yeah, yeah you're right. I, I probably wouldn't really identify. So for my final one, I have two, and I am going to transition to TV. Um, there we go. First, Game of Thrones, the Red Wedding. In the way that Empire Strikes Back or Planet of the Apes have become like the archetypal movie twist, I think the same could be said about Red Wedding as it relates to TV. The moment was so massive and so surprising that even people who weren't watching Game of Thrones were aware of it and likely (laughs) were spurred on to begin a binge watch because of that moment. I'd say that the Red Wedding and Jon Snow's death were sort of the two cultural moments that propelled Game of Thrones to a higher plane. I I would say, just quickly, Ned Stark's death in season one was like, hey, this isn't your average show. Anyone could die. And then Rob Stark was the unbelievable uh, development from that base point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and even though like I went into Game of Thrones knowing the Red Wedding was coming and which episode it was, you're still just absolutely blown away. And, you know, uh, not to get on a Game of Thrones tangent, but just to think of where that show was and where it ultimately wound up breaks the heart a bit. Now, (laughs) this is probably the twist that I'm proudest of for thinking of. It's one of my favorite twists of all time. While it's TV, I'm unfortunately not going to talk about Lost. We have to go back, even though that's an iconic twist. I, uh, I, I believe that that was the end of season three. But I am going with Breaking Bad, the Lily of the Valley Poison, which, that was a good one. which is, I believe, the end of season four, where Walt finally defeats Gus. Plot-wise, Walt not only surviving... But defeating Gus was a shock in and of itself, right? This is just a couple episodes removed from Crawl Space, where he's laying in the dirt, virtually accepting the fact that him and his family are going to be brutally murdered, right? (laughs) So the expectation in these final episodes is, while you don't expect your quote-unquote hero to lose, Walt was cornered. I mean, he his options were minimal, and he chose the only one he had, so... Fuck, There's, I gotta rewatch Breaking Bad. God damn, oh, this show is good. The best, the best. So, I mean, the ending phone call, I won, is just goat it's, it's shit. amazing. Um, but character-wise, more so than the, than the way that the twist fucks with your perception of the plot, the way that it fucks with your perception of character is haunting because it confirms what viewers had long feared. The man that you're rooting for is an absolute monster. Forget about actually poisoning the kid, which in and of itself is horrifying in its own right. Yeah, big no-no, post, post-cred pod listeners. Don't do that. But even more so, the sheer amount of pathological lying that he had to do to pull this off, lying to himself, lying to the kid, lying to Pinkman, lying to his family, is staggering. He bluffs to such an extent that he encourages Jesse to shoot him in the head 
Like that's how like that's how committed he was to his scheme. So those closing <laughs> and had a pocket pair of twos and was all in. So those <laughs> so those closing moments of where you're like basking in the glow of victory, the family's safe, Gus is dead, all is good, he's got the money, he's getting out, the cancer has gone away at the time. For the season to close on him quietly sitting in his backyard. For it to pan out and just give you the shot of the little, uh, I don't know what, what you call those things, but the things that you stick in like flower pots to tell yeah. you what kind of planet it is. To end a season on just an image of a fucking flower and to have the, the fine print of Lily of the Valley be so tiny, but the massive implications of that, that is how you do a fucking twist. It's such a good twist that I'm jacked up listening to you. Like, I'm so excited right now. I, I could run a 5K after this podcast. Breaking so Bad, excited. I mean, that's the type of show I probably rewatch every two years. I gotta re- I think I've rewatched it like one and a half, two times, you know, something oh, like that. Just the best. And then Better Call Saul's coming back soon. What, yep. what a great time we live in. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get to the, the twist at hand, really. Well, you're not going to spoil it, but... An interview with Edgar Wright last night in Soho, which, again, critics are are over the moon about this twist. I don't know what it is. I haven't seen the movie. So very interested to hear what he's got to say. Folks, today I am thrilled to be chatting to this guest of ours. You know him as the director of films such as Shaun of the Dead, Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and his newest film, Last Night in Soho, will be hitting theaters on October 29th. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Edgar Wright. How are you today, my man? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, congrats on the film. I really enjoyed it, just, just like I seem to do with all your work. But before we talk about the film itself, I want to talk about its genre. What does horror mean to you? And is it always something that you planned on experimenting in? I guess um, it's always been something that has excited me even before. I think my first experiences of horror movies were them being something illicit that I couldn't see. And my parents used to buy me and my brother this uh, magazine in the UK called Starburst, which was, I guess, like a cross between Starlog and Fangoria. But it was called Starburst. It was called Starburst. And it mostly, you know, was around the time of like the Star Wars movies and everything, the original trilogy, when I was about seven, my parents would buy me this magazine. I'm not sure they ever really looked at the contents because there was a lot of stuff about horror films in there. <laughs> I just remember as a seven-year-old reading about Lucia Fiolchi zombie films and like slasher movies and America Wealth in London and The Thing, you know, knowing full well that I could not see any of these movies. So, and in some cases I wouldn't see the movies for like, yeah, I know another five years or more. Um, so or sometimes 10 years. Like, so it is something where I was always very interested in the genre, even before I'd seen some of the movies. And I guess there's just something about the horror genre that, you know, it's at its best when it is something that's disturbing to you. And I, I think in a way I'd always wanted to do like, a more straight ahead horror film. Although Last Night in Soho is not quite a straight ahead horror film. Yeah, it's horror thriller film. horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of a mix. But I do think it takes quite a, it takes a harder turn into horror at one point than I thought it was going to. Good. I mean, it should be, you know, I think films should be surprising. I never have any like worries about films kind of starting as one thing and ending as another. That to me is the joy of going on the journey. And 
you know, obviously I, my first like sort of breakthrough movie was Shaun of the Dead, which has horror elements to it. Right. And I think I'd always liked the idea of, of doing something that was a bit more serious and, and, and darker. But in a way, the build up to that, and I've been thinking about Last Night in Soho for like a decade, <laughs> was if you're thinking about something which is like disturbing to you, you want to sort of do it right because... I don't know why you would make a horror film if you're doing it about a subject that didn't scare you in the slightest or didn't disturb you in the slightest. So I think part of the gestation period of this movie was like building up to it, essentially. Well, let me ask you then, based off of what you just said, what is it that you're scared of that you're trying to speak of? I my reading of it is that one of the big themes is that you're talking about the dangers of both nostalgia and escapism. You were saying that if it doesn't scare you, then then what's the point? So what in this film is that for you? I think there's a number of elements in this one. I mean, the nostalgia thing is a part of it in the sense that I started to wonder why I was so nostalgic. And I certainly one of those people that would think about, oh, wouldn't it be great to go back to the 60s? You know, I was born in 1974, so the 60s was the decade before me. And it's a source of obsession because you, it's like you just missed it. Like, it's, oh, I just missed the coolest decade. And then, you know, as you start to think about the idea of going back, the, is that in itself like a failure to deal with the present day? Are you in retreat because you're like sort of being so nostalgic. On top of that, it's the idea that is a danger of romanticizing the past by, you know, the idea that of people using the phrase, the good old days is always questionable because there is no decade where everything was great and nothing was bad. And of course, everything that's bad now was just as bad in the sixties and, and probably in a lot of cases worse. So I hope you're right. That was, in a way that was like the, the the nightmare of it was that you get to go back and that's the dream come true aspect but you can't have the good without the bad and so i guess it's like a cautionary tale for time travelers and then and then the other thing that i find nightmarish about it that does happen in the movie is even though the main character eloise goes back to the 60s in her dreams she's powerless to avert future events and that to me is like the real nightmare because she's not marty mcfly she can't go back and change the future. She basically is sort of powerless um, to do anything but like watch what's happening and and, and observe cannot, and observe and, and cannot avert an oncoming disaster. And so that's as me is where something is nightmarish. So at that point in the movie, once Eloise is sort of on the roller coaster of going back every time she goes to sleep, it's she's impo- it's impossible for her to kind of like stop it so that that was to me like like many of those i think there's those things i think about you know old like reading kind of about kind of true crimes and the idea that you could go back and save somebody it's sort of such a weird thing to sort of obsess about the idea that maybe if you were there you could stop somebody from stop some terrible tragedy from occurring but of course you can't so I think that was the thing in a way is trying to sort of cure that within myself with this idea of um, to stop fantasizing about going back in time and trying to sort of change, you know, like sort of change your own mistakes and also and also save people or like avert kind of like disaster. It's just a, it's just a, a, an interesting thing to me that it was, occupy my thoughts a lot. 
Well, then you actually touch on what I want to ask you about. How did this idea come to you? Was there any particular inspiration or moment from your life, whether it be past or present? I think, honestly, um, aside from, you know, the, the, the genre influences, the, the real inspiration is just being in London. Because, mm-hmm. like, I've lived in London for 27 years. And London, and then Soho itself in London, which is a square mile right in the middle of the center of London. But even though it's in the middle of like in between the West End, which is kind of the big, like sort of our version of Broadway, basically um, the theater district. And then on the other side is Oxford Street, which is the shopping district. But in the middle is Soho, which for centuries has sort of been known as almost like a den of iniquity in terms of where it seems like other like rules don't quite apply to Soho. And but it's a strange place because it's the center of the film and TV industry and sort of the heart of show business itself. And yet it's also the heart of the darker side of London. Not so much now where it's been gentrified like a lot of cities, but there's still that kind of dark energy to the place. And it's certainly a place that after midnight, it feels like the old Soho starts to rise up. And as such, as a sort of a, you know, a nightlife district, it's both kind of compelling and disturbing in equal measure. So, and the buildings are all like hundreds of years old. They've been there for like four centuries, some of them. Right. So you you can't stop thinking about it. You know, I mean, or like I the past can't. is literally all around you. Yes. I'm the kind of person, much like Eloise in the movie, that thinks a lot about what walls have seen, you know, like uh-huh. what walls have seen and, and what has been left behind by the previous inhabitants or previous events. You know, and there are sort of two theories about ghosts. There's the idea that ghosts are like souls that are left on earth in purgatory with unfinished business and uh, or, or unable to even go to heaven or hell because maybe they, they haven't even been found yet. You know, right. their sort of murder is unsolved or there's some kind of unfinished business. So that's one sort of theory goes. And then the other theory is the idea that like an event would leave something behind. And I, I think a lot of people believe that. And I, I, I would believe that as well, even though I have no proof of it, that if a murder happened in a room, you know, is there any energy left behind by that event? I, I would say yes. Yeah. I mean, well, that's why people legitimately want to know if somebody died in a house before they buy it. That's a very real thing. Uh, based on what you've said so far, I think I know what you're going to say now. Ellie actually touches on something that I think about a lot. If you could live at any time, when would it be? Now, I usually jokingly say being a pirate because something about like the lifestyle just seems like it'd be a blast, except for when, you know, you're dying of some horrible disease on a wooden ship in the ocean. So my real answer, and it's actually related to yours. I was born in 1993 and I'm from New York. So my answer is New York City in the 80s with all that excess and booming. So what time period or place would you like to live in? I mean, I, I feel weird saying the 60s in London because I just made a film about <laughs> you shouldn't go back. But I mean, I may, maybe just with armed with the knowledge of all of the things to avoid, maybe I still will probably go back to 60s mm. London. Yeah, but, hey, you. But I, I guess I guess I have this tome of research that I did for the movie, like detailing all of the bad stuff. So I, I think I could, if, I, if I was smart enough to keep my wits about me i mean obviously i mean the reason that people obsess about 60s london is because it was it was a moment where the country was sort of at the forefront of culture uh, music just everything like we were sort of like the, that mid 60s sort of boom mm. um 
I don't know. So probably that. Oh, my my second option would be thirties Hollywood. Oh, like, I think that would be like an amazing time. I mean, also not not also not without its darkness. And you know, you could probably make exactly the film. You probably could make exactly the same film as last night in Soho in thirties Hollywood, and not really have to change much apart from the uh, scene headings. Based on that, I take it you're looking forward to Damien Chazelle's Babylon then. Yeah. Well, I, I absolutely I, I I read a lot about that period and I find it fascinating. So I, I love kind of film history books about that period and 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 about directors from that period as well. Like I'm sort of obsessed with Busby Barkley and, and how they made those films, which, you know, it certainly seems like the making of those musicals would not pass muster with uh, IHC, the, 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 the union <laughs> in terms of just the working conditions. But. I think sort of those, it's just interesting when, I, I'm looking forward to Damien's film because it's an interesting period where, again, like Hollywood was slightly a law unto itself because it's like a new city and it had just mm-hmm. been created out of that industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason that everybody went to Los Angeles was just because it had consistent weather. There's no other reason to build a city in the desert rather right. than the filmmakers thought. You know, obviously, if you're filming in London or in New York, the weather is very changeable. But in L.A., it's just like sunshine all year round. So that's why they went to went to Hollywood, well, created Hollywood, essentially, right. in the desert. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first of your films that t- that takes place in a time period that's not current day. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it half takes place in the 60s. Right. Right. What were some of the unexpected challenges and rewards of that? Well, the biggest challenge by far, the biggest challenge of production was shooting in in Soho in London itself, which is an area of London which is genuinely 24-7. Mm. So that's quite challenging. And then on top of that, we were turning some streets into the 60s mm-hmm. in the middle of the, one of the busiest nightlife districts in, in London. So it was just a thing of taking the ball by the horns and going for it. Like uh, we had an amazing location manager, Camilla Stevenson, and we knew exactly what we wanted to do and was just willing to kind of go for it. Like, so that was easily the biggest challenge of the production in that sense of just shooting in an area that people don't really shoot in. It's like, right. Trying to film in Times Square or something, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, weirdly, I remember when I watched the film Birdman, I was really impressed that they Mm. had some Times Square scenes. So I was thinking, wow, that's not easy to do. Like you're filming, making this film right in the middle of New York. Well, let me say that your romantic feelings for Soho definitely come through because and it's I believe the shot is in the trailer as well. Ellie's first night there when she walks out to the Thunderball marquee. Even I wanted to live there. You know, I don't I don't I don't blame you. It looked gorgeous. Um, This movie begins with a literal needle drop, something you're obviously known quite well for. What is the process of your film's? music look like do you have in your head a list of songs going in does it come to you while you're cutting the film together or is it a bit of both no it it all it all comes before i mean i think it's very very rare where a song is added in post because usually the songs have been you know they're they're rhythmically timed yeah yeah or like in a lot of sequences in this movie there are like literal dance sequences to specific songs or references to the songs that are actually playing. Um, 
so everything that's like so i think maybe one of the few songs that was like not in there maybe like one or two songs that were added in post because we had a room for it and it you know but but usually but even those songs come from like a big list of songs where in in the preparation to write this film and in the kind of 10 years that it was gestating in my head so the thing that would keep me inspired to make it would be this slowly growing like list of songs so i'd have this playlist on my itunes called at first it was called soho which was like i think like 600 songs and then it was called soho five stars which is like 300 songs and and then and then from that like the it it, the quickly the ones rise to the top in terms of i know that this is a song i want in the movie or in some cases there would be a song where i would visualize I would visualize the scene as I was listening to it. There's there's the first dance number in, well, not the first dance number, the first 60s dance number mm-hmm. um, is a song, is set to a song by the Graham Bond organization called Wade in the Water, like a cover of Wade in the Water. And I would hear this particular cover and I was like, I've got to use this in the film. And then I would just like see the scene in my head. Like I knew what it was. So that was something that was very, it, it's almost like a, a movie version of synesthesia you know synesthesia the the condition where you see colors i was just going to ask music. you about that yeah yeah i was just going to ask you about I, that. I guess i have like the movie version of synesthesia yeah <laughs> that sounds like a hell of a tool to have in the bag um i want to ask you about your two leads um was there ever a world where they switched roles how did you go about finding the right person for the right part because i would say thomason and anya while Anya's a bit older. They're both at similar stages of their careers. They both have the same immense talent. So how did the casting process go for you? Well, Annie Taylor-Joy was the first person I met about the film, maybe like three years before we even had the script, (laughs) because I saw her in Sundance in Uh, The Witch. I was on the jury, actually. I was on the jury that gave Robert Eggers Best Director. So I'd seen that movie. And even as I was watching that movie, I was like saying to myself, ah, she should be the lead of my Soho film. <laughs> and then I met her for coffee in Los Angeles shortly afterwards. And I ended up telling her the entire plot of the movie over coffee. And then she was like, I told her the whole plot. I did, I, I'm not sure I planned to, it just kind of happened. And then she was like, wow, okay. Um, she goes, I want to be in that film. And then I said, well, as soon as I've got a script, I'll get it to you. And then you know, then I went off and made Baby Driver and that, you know, that takes three years. Um, so then when I actually had the script and I'd seen Anya a couple of times where I just kept in touch with her and, you know, and I'm sure it started to feel like the boy who cried wolf about this, this script that didn't exist. Right. Um, <laughs> so then eventually in 2018, when me and Christy Wilson Cairns were writing the screenplay, by this point, I'd seen Anya in a number of other movies like Split and Thoroughbreds. And I start to think, well, maybe she's already done the Eloise part in a way, or she's kind of gone beyond that. And also at that same time, the Sandy part in the script was getting bigger and sort of expanding in the draft. So it occurred to me, having seen Anya in other movies and also even just seeing Anya on the red carpet and in fashion shoots. So she's got that classic look to her. Absolutely. Well, I just thought she should play the 60s part. Absolutely. So then when I sent her the script, I was a bit nervous that she might react badly to it. But I said, hey, will you here's the script. Will you look at the part of Sandy instead of Eloise? 
And luckily she emailed back and said, I would love to play Sandy. And I want to, you know, I'd love to be a part of the movie. I'd love to play Sandy. So she was the first person attached to play Sandy. And then, and then after that, we went looking for Eloise. And Thomas and Mackenzie's name was one of the first people mentioned. It's actually mentioned by my producer. And I'd seen her in that film, Leave No Trace, directed by Deborah Granick, which was incredible. And, you know, I met Thomasin. And, and then, I mean, Thomasin also, it's worth pointing out in the movie, is was 18 years old playing an 18 year old oh doesn't always happen and so in a strange way like thomason coming to london to make the movie and eloise coming to london in the movie are sort mm. of inextricably linked in my head forever mm-hmm. and on the stars not to cast aspersions on their careers but i would say that i would say that most of your films don't star a bona fide a-lister but someone on the verge of it is and this is obviously the case with Anya and Thomason, both of which I think a lot of people are pegging to be the next big things. Is giving talent you believe in a career boost, something that you seek out to do? Or has it just happened to be this way? I mean, you've caught Anya Taylor-Joy like during her moment. Is that by design or what? Definitely not by design in the sense that like she shot the Queen's Gambit like immediately after we did Last Night in Soho. Um, you know, we had to go on hiatus because of the lockdown. So, so actually she came back after the Queen's Gambit to do some additional filming after the lockdown. But I think the thing with Anya is that in my head, it's like, I guess I already thought she was a megastar. So there's that kind of thing where people like that, that talented, like Thomason and Anya, you're sort of waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. I certainly had that feeling with people that I casted, Scott Pilgrim as well, is that mm-hmm. I thought they already were you know, going to be like huge. I remember even saying to Donna Langley Universal, saying Brie Larson's going to be enormous. <laughs> like say, saying, I cast her when she was 19 in Scott Pilgrim, you know? I mean, it's not really by design. I guess in a way, like you, you cast, I like casting actors who are close to the age of their parts. Okay. Um, so maybe that has something to do with it. And there's something I think, whether it's in Scott Pilgrim or Baby Driver or in this, casting actors that are close to the age of the parts just gives it some kind of verisimilitude that's different if you were casting like a 26 year old pretending to be an 18 year old right it's as simple as that so that by that nature you're sort of tending to cast up and comers i guess so we don't need to go into the details but i want to ask you about the film's twists and just writing twists at large at what stage of the writing do you come up with twists is it is it something that you work backwards from or is it something that you arrive to I would say it's something that you work backwards. Well, I not backwards from in terms of I knew I knew what the ending of the movie was very early on in terms of the 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 story, and and I guess so. Then when you're writing it, you're you're leading up to that, you know, like sort of. I don't really want to talk too much more about it because okay, in a, in a, no, in a weird enough. way, it's like some people go in not knowing that there is going to be a twist at all. So, um, and I think sometimes it's 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 a it's a tricky one. I feel like people are like unnecessarily tough on M. Night Shyamalan a lot of the time because they sort of say, oh, it's all about the twist. And it's like, why not? Like, so I don't care if that's his thing. Like, I I enjoy it. I actually thought the twist in old was actually really good. I liked it. Yeah. And I thought the final five minutes was like, yeah, I'm in. I'm in, man. Like, I think the thing is, I like like films that give you something like that. And and I I particularly like films that are like sort of 70s films. I'm not going to say what any of them are because I don't want to lead people into kind of where my film might be going. But I do like that thing sometimes you get in old thrillers from the 60s and 70s where it seems like the film's over 
and you go, huh, I guess it's done. And then there's like sort of, and then, and then yeah. there's the sort of, and then the kind of the, the, the finale kicks in. Yeah. So I, there's a lot of films like that where I, I like the fact that you think it's kind of done and then something else is coming. You know, I, well, I mean, what's a good example of that? Dress to Kill has a good one like that, where it feels like the film is kind of like done. And then there's like a sort of an, an extra like 15 minute kind of operatic. Set or uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Primal Fear with uh, Ed. Oh, yeah, of course. Ed Norton. That's a great example of that, I think. Um, so I want to loop back to what we were talking about with escapism and nostalgia. Do you feel like these two, do, these two things are becoming increasingly relevant or relied upon these days? And what are you trying to say about that in this film? Well, I mean... It's definitely something like I'm, I'm 47 years old and um, I don't like I'm not so enamored of 80s nostalgia because I grew up in the 80s. So mm-hmm. there's a sort of certain point with I understand why other people do get interested in it, but I don't really need to see the same like 10 movies being remade for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I mean, it's something I, I understand why it is. And, and, it, and in cases where people are remaking films, I think if you're if you're like making a film for your kids, I understand that in terms of like, this was a big film to me when I was a kid and I like to like make a version of it for my kids. I understand that. I think if it's just something where you're just kind of like recycling the same like 10 franchises just just because is, is starting to kind of wear on me in a sense of, I just feel like I've already seen the, the first version of that film in 1979. I've seen the first. I mean, I don't want. I don't want. I don't want to mention any names for any films because in a lot of cases, <laughs> I know. I know these filmmakers, but there was one in particular. I'm not even going to say it because I know the people who are making the new one. But it's like, as like, and honestly, I could just take the first one and like, if you could delete all the sequels, I would do it in a heartbeat because right. it's like you don't need anything more than the original film. And there's so many of them that are like that, where it's like what the remakes are doing is just. Um, reminding you of how you felt about the first one mm-hmm. sometimes somebody makes a sequel where they 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 it's additive like james cameron's aliens is additive to the franchise because yeah. the first one is great and then the second one is great and it's doing something sort of different at the same time but i think too many times recently people are just trying to conjure up just the feeling of seeing the first film and i wish people like franchise filmmaking is not going to go away, but I wish people would just take a, a few more risks. But then that's difficult because then I think I've seen it happen to friends of mine who've made like franchise movies. And it seems like you're kind of like really just caught in a no-win situation where if you do something that's exactly like one of the original ones, people just say it's like karaoke. And if you do do something bold and different, some members of the fan base just kind of start like committing Harry Carey. <laughs> like you think like, everybody calm down. Tell me about me. it. <laughs> well, you, you've actually- I te- managed to get through that without mentioning a single film or filmmaker. And I'm very happy about that. Well, I am unfortunately <laughs> going to do it for you. Um, no, no, don't, please. No, I know, no, no. I know, I know some of the people involved in these films. Of course not, of course not. But but I, but I you did team, team me up on something that I want to ask about IP and franchising and and all that. And I want to ask you about Ant-Man, but not in the way that you expect. It's already been over half a decade since that film. And the reliance uh, on IP and franchise has only grown since then and will continue to do so. 
What is it like navigating this current landscape as a director, particularly one who is so celebratedly unique as yourself? And does it inspire you to be even more your own artist? Well, I would never be so dumb to say that I'd never do a franchise movie. I mean, I I say that on record is that it's not like I've ever said I'd never do one. And, you know, when it's announced in some trade magazine that I am doing, I'd have to say, Edgar, you lied. You said you'd never do a franchise movie. I I never said that. I think the thing is what I, I do believe is that I really believe that studios just have to make more original films because the thing that's baffling to me, and I don't mean like just original standalone films, but even like original films that could become franchises. Right. Because John Wick. Well, no, I mean, that's a good example of a recent one, for sure. What's what's strange to me is that that there seems to be this short-sightedness that nobody seems to understand that in 1977, that Star Wars was an original screenplay, (laughs) or that 1979, Alien was an original screenplay, or that 1984, Terminator was an original screenplay. So it's like, why wouldn't you take more risks on things that could go beyond? I just sort of, I guess like, when I was, you know, I've been a film fan since I was like three years old, but I think if if I could go back to the 80s me and say, hey, guess what? All these films that you love, they're going to be making them forever. <laughs> I think I'd be pretty bummed out even then because it's like, you don't, you don't, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like I need to just keep seeing the same things. Absolutely. So, so I think like it's, it's fine when there's a great reinvention of something. And I think when people do reinvent a franchise, like if I think with, when the first Daniel Craig Bond came out, they're doing something sort of radically different as a, as a reboot. It's very, it's very interesting to watch. And that I think is, is, is fair. And like, was a a great example of that. I I just, um, I just, I just feel like sort of like some of these things could take a break and it's not like they, they don't need to come back, but I don't need one every two years. So I guess you're saying that, that we could get the, Edgar Wright to direct the next Bond film train going now, huh? <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> I mean, messing. I will say that last night in Soho, there's two, I was saying this to Carrie Fukunaga, who's a friend of mine, that like bizarrely, there's two films in October that feature the 007 logo because at the end of last night in Soho, because we used the Thunderbolt marquee and Barbara Broccoli and Michael J. Wilson gave us the permission to use it. That's I actually great. like got in touch with them saying, hey, I'm coming to you with a Bond-related request that's nothing to do with your <laughs> film. <laughs> but, so if you look at the end credits, like the 007 logo is in there because, you know, it's like property of Eon and everything. So um, it is funny that 007... Yeah. There, were, there, were, there were a few Bond references in Last Night in Soho beyond the Thunderbolt market. Absolutely. And well, they drink, they drink Vespers and uh, right. Diana Rigg is also a Bond alumni and so is Margaret Nolan. Uh, Absolutely. Does a cameo in the movie is also a Bond alumni. Edgar, I've got to wrap here. It was an absolute honor and thrill to talk to you. I wish you all the best with Last Night in Soho. It's a fantastically, devilishly fun movie. It hits theaters on October 29th, and I can't wait to see what you do next, sir. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you, Edgar. Big thanks to Edgar Wright for joining Eric and Post Cred Pod. Now I, you know, can't wait to go see the movie. Uh, Really pumped, really excited. Uh, if you guys have any thoughts or anything, uh, as always, hit us up on social media at Pod at Eric Italiano, at great underscore Catsby. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everything. I, I went and checked this week because we say it every week. 
We don't have a single new inter- uh, review for like weeks. So guys, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely asking you. I'm not just saying it. Please go do that. It really helps. And then stick around for next week. Earlier in the week, Eric's got some really cool interviews with the Heart of They Fall uh, star, Jonathan Majors, who was also Kang the Conqueror and Loki, as well as filmmaker Jason Samuels. James Samuels. James Samuels. My fault, Mr. Samuels. Please don't uh, revoke our access in the future. Uh, that's a Netflix film I can't wait to see. You had pretty Fire. damn positive. Yeah, so right? good. Yep, go check so his, good. Go check his reviews out on uh, uh, Bro Bible. I think you wrote a couple articles, right? Mm-hmm. And that yeah. will be hitting Netflix on November 3rd. So we will probably drop those interviews either next Tuesday or Wednesday. Pretty darn excited. And then, of course, because listen, I think Marvel's probably our go-to topic here. We are going to have a full spoiler discussion of Eternals. We've got an interview with Don Lee, who plays Gilgamesh in the movie. And we're going to you know, talk about its implications for the MCU going forward, including its two absolutely fire post-credit scenes and after you guys see eternals make sure to gas up that rotten tomato score to let the critics know how fucking stupid they are <laughs> i'm a critic so i feel like you know i'm a critic who liked it but i, I don't know i, I, don't I like had the- I, I had tweeted like do not trust critics and someone was like aren't you a critic i was like well besides me <laughs> <laughs> yeah everyone but me listen Guys, don't I, I disagree with critics on here, but please don't start sending like hostile hate mail on Twitter and everything. No, to critics. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> Unless you want to send it to me because I do actually get quite the kick out of hate mail. <laughs> you do. You actually have a great response to most hate mail. All right, y'all. We will talk to y'all next week. Peace. Until next week. I'm going to make an offer, guys. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.